Hey everyone, welcome back to Ed here in Apologetics, wherever you may be, however you may be joining us. Thank you for making this part of your, your day. Today, the show is brought to you, as always, with your support at patreon.com slash Apologetics. Today, I got Tim here from Invoking Theism, really cool YouTube channel. We're going to briefly go over three arguments for the existence of God. We're going to go through contingency, the teleological argument, and moral knowledge. Uh, what's up, Tim? How you doing? Hey, man. Hey, guys. Um, I am doing doing pretty good um glad to be here yeah man good stuff so in case people don't know who you are what you do can you just talk a little bit about who you are tim yeah so yeah so um as my name says run the channel uh invoking theism and basically um it's basically my public expression of uh the things i'm studying things i'm learning in terms of uh philosophy and science and those things include um, mainly like things like in metaphysics and ontology um, arguments and from natural theology of that sort and uh, interviews and discussions. So uh, that's what you'll find if you go and uh, look through my channel. Yeah, man, you got a, a lot of really cool stuff on your YouTube channel. I was watching a little bit of it earlier and it's just, you got, you don't release a lot of videos. I know people like to make fun of you, mostly John Dunphy for that, but yeah. you have some really good content out there when you've got some stuff going. Thanks man. Appreciate it. Yeah. So we'll kind of just dive into three arguments. We're just going to spend probably about 15 minutes on each one. Just give Tim a chance to kind of frame the argument where he's at with his research. And I'll kind of throw at him some of the common objections you'll see from atheists or maybe scholarship um just depends so we'll just dive in we'll start with the argument from contingency can you just talk a little bit about that argument and how you think it leads to the existence of god sure so yeah so the 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 contingency argument is my favorite uh cosmological argument so because cosmological argument is a uh is a genre of arguments a family of arguments that typically argue for a um a first cause or an ultimate origin of uh, of the universe, um, and usually starting with uh, one basic feature of reality, we all can kind of agree upon, and establishing uh, a uh, a case for either a first cause or an ultimate origin um, that eventually uh, is something that looks a lot like God. So that's kind of like what the cosmological arguments do. And I was a um, I was a Kalam guy for a while, and that was actually really helpful. But um, I, I really like the contingency argument because it allows me to um, more rigorously uh, look at things, and um, I feel like it's it's the most powerful version. And I think you can actually, um, given the gap problem, I think you can actually establish um, pretty much perfect being theism uh, from that type of argument. And could you talk about the gap problem quickly, just in case someone doesn't know what that is? Yeah. So basically the gap problem is uh, the last problem, a cosmological argument would face, which would be uh, how do we bridge the gap between establishing that there is a first cause or an ultimate origin. And then that first cause or ultimate origin being, what we would think God would be. So how do we get, how do we bridge the gap from first cause to God is an easy way to say it. And um, so that's kind of like the last thing you you do in a cosmological argument is you establish that. So. Yeah, good stuff. So can you talk, I'm, 
it seems like in continuity of cosmological arguments, there's kind of this idea that there must be a first cause or there must be a necessary being. And then we kind of get mm-hmm. to that from that necessary being to a theistic God, like we as Christians believe in. So can you talk a little bit about how we get from a first cause um, to God? Yeah. So basically um, going with the contingency argument is going from a first cause uh, to God uh, really depends upon how um, what principles you're working with within, within an argument. Cosmological arguments start with a uh, sort of explanatory or causal principle, and you're kind of able to take that all the way up. So um, if you were to say uh, something like, uh, all contingent things have explanations, and then... You, you look at like uh, the reality we live in. We say, okay, well, I think I live in a contingent reality, but more contingency can't ex- can't explain that, or else it would just be more contingency. So we need something um, uh, that is uh, uh, external um, or something that will be the foundations of uh, the contingent reality. Now, I think thinking about it that way is good because if you some people will just opt in and say, well, um, I think it's just contingency. I think it's just brute. There is, it's an unexplainable type of fact. And I don't think, uh, unexplainable contingency is a good way to go. I think you should do that with necessity. So most people would, would agree that then there is a necessary thing that is, um, the foundations or the grounding or the anchoring of, uh, the contingent reality, if they can see that we do live in such a reality. And if that's so, I feel like the best route you could go is uh, straight by showing that um, this is going to be unlike the physical. And I think one of the reasons that you can show that is through uh, what Josh Rasmussen defends, which is called the argument from arbitrary limits or the problem from arbitrary limits. And the problem from arbitrary limits is saying that um, something, if something is arbitrary limited, arbitrarily limited, so it's a limit without an explanation, um, then uh, that that that's a problem because if it's arbitrarily limited, then it could have been uh, uh, any other way, but for some reason it's limited in this way. So, for example, if you take um, let's say the foundations, it can only produce 10 to the 88th particles or something like that. Uh, Well, that's an arbitrary limit because being consistent with logic, there's nothing uh, that says that a foundation must only produce 10 to the 80th particles. Why is it not 10 to the 89, uh, 10 to the 90th or 10 to the 70th? You know, why why that particular feature? And it's a problem because um, it brings complexity into the question. If you're trying to explain reality, you are um, uh, providing a metaphysical theory of reality. But if your metaphysical theory is full of arbitrary limits, uh, arbitrary cutoff points, that's actually very complex because um, you have all this unexplained stuff that you're supposed to kind of bag in together to explain one kind of feature. So... He, Josh would argue that um, having a foundation that uh, doesn't have any specified limits is simpler um, 
than explanation uh, than the one that does. And you could always ask, why is it arbitrarily limited in that type of way? So I think the I think that's one of the m- more powerful reasons to believe that um, the foundation of contingent reality would actually be something that doesn't have those limits. Mm-hmm. So one of the first features I already get is okay, the foundation is limitless, and I wouldn't in myself. I don't really think of any natural thing. I mean, would you, if someone said, oh yeah, I'm a materialist and I believe that the foundations of reality doesn't have any limits, you know, well, it sounds, um, that sounds more like theism than it does uh, materialism because at that point, you're not positing a certain type of geometry or structure or something with a certain amount of energy or it, it just gets rid of all that. You don't need that to explain all those things, so... Yeah, I think something interesting that you bring up is the idea of the idea of simplicity. Um, so I'm curious, like, what are your views on kind of like I, I didn't send you this in the question, so if you're not prepared for it, it's cool. But what do you think about the idea of like the doctrine of divine simplicity? Like, do you think that's kind of like a necessary thing that you get with like this argument from contingency? I think that the um, divine doctrine of divine simplicity. Uh, it is it is a philosophical, as a purely philosophical one, but I uh, I hold to divine simplicity. But I need to specify, I don't hold to a Thomistic version of divine simplicity. I don't accept. Uh, I have my I have my own uh, reservations when it comes to Thomas Aquinas's or what or what Thomist today um, term absolute divine simplicity, but. I think that thinking of God as not simple is not a good way to go. Um, thinking of God as being composed and having constituent parts um, isn't good because, again, it goes into, well, those are limits, you know, and, and, and then that needs further explanation. Anything that is composed uh, is composed in a particular arrangement. Uh, but why that particular arrangement, you know, and, and why those things? So I think that if God was not simple, he would not have, he would not be uncaused. Uh, so yeah. So we, when we say simple, you know, it's just like in, in philosophy, it's something that cannot be decomposed, something that has no composition. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I was going to say, so God has like no like parts that can be reduced in his nature, right? Is that kind of what you're going Yeah, ex- exactly. And I would agree with the Thomas that God doesn't have a form. He doesn't have a geometry. You know, he doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, have those things. Um, That is not what uh, 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 instantiates him in reality. It's not that he that he's instantiated within a particular structure, um, but rather he is the structure, you know. So and Thomas would say that he's undifferentiated being. And I'm still kind of iffy on what that really means entirely. But uh, there's a good there's good papers and stuff defending divine simplicity without having to go all the way down the Thomistic route. Hmm. So there are a couple of maybe one or two objections at you before we get into this. And I think one thing I know Paulogi, I think his name kind of went after you with a kind of a, a different idea on Twitter, um, but kind of this idea of the principle of sufficient reason, like there's reasons for things that exist. So I know you covered it in your recent video. Will you talk a little bit about like PSR, what it is and why you think that we need it? There's nothing that like exists without explanation, I guess you could say. Um. Yeah, so just uh, kind of speak about what the PSR is and and things of that sort. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so 
basically the PSR is uh, the principle of sufficient reason. And the principle of sufficient reason was um, uh, posited by a philosopher um, and mathematician, uh, Gottfried Leibniz. And it was also uh, adopted by uh, Spinoza. And basically, it's a principle in which I think uh, undergirds uh, kind of our reason itself. Um, when we're doing reason, I think that we assume the PSR. So basically, it's a principle that states that um, this, uh, the strongest versions would state that uh, if there is a fact, that fact has, has an explanation. So uh, all facts have explanations for why they are, why they obtain. Um, there's a reason why. Um, there's a reason why my, uh, table that I'm have my laptop on is in the particular region of the house. It is, you know, um, cause that's a fact, you know, there's, a, it's a fact that there are clouds in the sky and there's an explanation as to why, um, in terms of atmospheric physics and things of that sort. So it's, it's, it, it's, uh, it seems to be very just unproblematic. Um, and so, uh, but like anything in philosophy, there are some controversial things. Um, and uh, even atheist philosopher Graham Moppy uh, holds to a PSR. There are actually different versions of it. Um, and so this is where we need to differentiate between uh, strong versions and weak versions. So the PSR is true. I think we agree that these facts. But the one that uh, Dr. Alexander Proust argues for in the Blackwell Companion in his uh, uh, contingency argument paper is one that simply states, any contingent fact has an explanation. So he just boils it down to facts that are contingent. I agree with I agree with him. The the facts that we concern ourselves with in this reality are facts that are dependent. They are contingent. And those do have explanations. And basically, if if you're doing science, you're pretty much assuming this principle. You're saying, I'm gonna go study the galaxies and I'm gonna go um create a model and you're assuming that your model can be created or you can attempt to create a model that accurately describe what's happening. Uh, cosmologists truly think that they're going to uh, figure out uh, universe's origins. Um, so uh, science is, is built upon this. And, and for those who love evolution, you know, we, um, if you're, if you were to deny this principle that anybody could say that the, the transition from, um, from uh from our ape cousins to homo sapiens would be no there'd be it would just be oh it just happened but like no we know that there's an explanation of that and we do that and the explanation is ev uh, evolutionarily and things of common descent of that sort so explanations exist and Leibniz even said even if the explanation might may not even be known to us at, at the time there's an explanation now this is where um things get controversial if you take a strong version of the psr that um every fact has an explanation uh it suffers from a, a clever argument called uh, from bootstrapping or the modal collapse which basically says that well if you're going to say that all you're gonna you're basically saying that everything is um it boils down to it collapses into everything being necessary if everything has an explanation um then everything will be explained by something and something. And then you, you know, you get to the necessity. Um, but then if that necessity is supposed to explain 
all those facts, all those facts boil down in that necessity, then um, what? Then we really shouldn't think that there's really any contingency going on here, um, and everything should be necessary because um, this necessary thing is the thing uh, explaining it, but it's actually entailing it. Um, so it's like an entailment principle thing, and um, and basically, uh, uh, Christian philosopher Peter Van Eenwagen argues this. But only if you use a principle that uh, entails the existence of things. So it's like it's like you know how can a necessary thing um, produce a contingent effect? Basically, mm-hmm. it's, it's basically the, the problem there. If you say everything has an explanation, um, if you say if you turn do it in terms of either things existence or without entailing an explanation that's not entailing, um, then you can avoid that. And that's what philosophers like Graham Oppie, uh think about that. So um, uh, there are other things thrown at the PSR as well, but I think I um, I think that's uh, it's I, th- I think it's safe. Um, yeah. And you know, it, it's just one principle among many other explanatory principles, but I, I think it's pretty safe. Yeah, and I think the principle of sufficient reason, I'll just add one thing before we transition, is very intuitive. Like, you don't think there's that many people who deny it in their everyday lives. So, can you talk a little bit about the teleological argument? It's the idea of design, which points to a designer. I know you've been working on this and studying this. Can you talk a little bit about the teleological argument? Uh, Yeah, so I have always been interested in... um, good arguments and and things and and as i read and as i study what i've noticed is there's not a lot of literature uh contemporary literature on uh defending teleological arguments um in terms of biology like so you know we usually we have these cosmological arguments and things we have fine tuning with has which has to do with cosmic fine tuning but there's not a lot like ever since it almost feels like ever since William Paley's watchmaker, um, like that was pretty much all we've got going. So I've, I've, I'm convinced by the fine tuning argument. I think it's cool. I think, uh, Robin Collins has done great work on this subject and, um, I recommend anybody to read his work and Luke Barnes's work on that. Um, but what I've noticed is that there, whenever you try to speak about teleology in terms of biology, um, pretty much an atheist will probably just go, wait, stop, and he'll just put Darwin's face up to you and be like, remember this guy? That's why we don't talk about teleology and biology. And I always thought that was wrong. Like, like even when I was a young earth creationist, like I always thought that even if evolution were true, it would be evidence of some, some more, something, uh, a, it still would be evidence of a found t- uh, an intelligence like God. So putting that to the side, I, um, I've been doing a lot of research into the field of evolutionary biology and, uh, that has been a really, 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 really interesting, uh, project I set out. I didn't know where it was going to take me. I just wanted to be informed, but, um, it took me to really actually see evolution it's most um, sophisticated and most up-to-date and uh, way possible 
and understanding it. And what I've noticed is that actually evolution is um, they're actually, I see teleology within evolution and I don't see what a lot of these atheists who claim that Darwin did away with teleology and biology as Richard Hawkins would say. And there's multiple reasons, more reasons for that. But with my knowledge up to this point, with reading, reading articles, literature, listening to interviews, lectures, um, it's um, unsubstantiated. And so if you want me to go into like how that uh, kind of plays into everything I can or do you yeah, take a few minutes and just kind of go into like what you see in evolutionary biology that kind of leads you to mm-hmm. this teleological argument. Cool. Yeah. So basically we have to, if I was going to argue for, from design, um, most people would put me in the intelligent design camp because they, because the type of design that I was able to make an inference from, from biology was actually something that is way more nuanced than the classic intelligent design way. Um, and here's why. So when I look into, um, the research, um, what I see is, uh, a dwindling of neo-Darwinism, which is the kind of forward formula of evolution, natural selection, random mutation. And that's how evolution works. Um, there's heritable variation and descent with modification and and that should be sufficient with lots of time to explain novelties, innovations, um, species, populations, and things of that sort. And so natural selection is the creative force, and the mutations are the things that provide the variation for natural selection to act upon, that type of thing. Well, that's a very outdated view. Very, very, very outdated view. And um, that view has been superseded by a view um, in which uh, bacterial geneticist James Shapiro calls uh, natural genetic engineering. And he says, well, actually, evolution is actually um, a set of complex uh, mechanisms and processes all working together um, to produce change. And it's a 24-7 thing. It's not not like they're waiting up, the organism is waiting upon a random mutation to occur to do something. Um, but it's a, it's a constant maintaining of homeostasis and um, doing things to produce um, refinements and improvements within the organism. So what I see there, and this is uh, this is empirically backed up. This is not contro- uh, this, uh, uh, to no scientist in the field is controversial. Um, that what I see is okay. So nature is bent on making sure that life flourishes. I'm like, interesting. Why would it do that? If I was to compare naturalism and theism, what I expect on a naturalism for there to be these life stable, reproducible complexity, um, uh, a complex dynamical system of that sort. Would I expect naturalism to, to produce that type of effect? Um, it seems like there's something, you know, the, the, there seems to be some purposeful thing going on here in the sense of um, why must the show go on in terms of life and biology? So anyways, just, put that, that philosophical consideration there to the side. And so, um, anyways, there's many sources of variation. Random mutation is one, but it's, it's, it's not one that, that, um, that delivers any type of, you would never get, um, deer antlers or anything like that from, uh, from just random mutation. It's many mechanisms and processes working together, uh, being done by the cell 
to produce change. So the cell actually is um, equipped with pretty much programming abilities. It's able to, it's able to edit its own uh, genome and produce effects. And so I'm like, okay, I'm like, I'm like, well, what, what's the origin of, of this? What's the best explanation for that? The most basic units of life are actually impugned with the ability to uh, uh, harness and direct and improve their situation uh, through information processing, problem solving, etc. So what I see in nature is a lot of um, teleology here. Every single evolutionary change that happens, happens for a reason. There is a direction. The cells have a toolkit of many different responses they can give to a particular situation and they don't just happen at any time or anywhere they uh happen um uh in a way that is uh purposeful for that situation so it's kind of like if you're you're driving along the uh you're driving along and you realize oh my car needs more oil and then you realize I have to go put more oil in my car so that my car runs smoothly so I can maintain it more. That's kind of what a cell does. They recognize a situation and they recognize that they need to respond in some particular way. So I see a lot of teleology there. Um, and then one last part, which is uh, the structuralist literature basically uh, argues uh, and shows empirically that there are these natural laws that govern biological form and there's only. Um, a few ways in which uh, 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 organism like form can actually manifest itself. And actually there's many patterns in nature of the same forms kind of being used, uh, but to produce uh, uh, different types of structures and species doing different things. So we have these natural laws that govern form. We have um, the directedness of nature trying to flourish life and can change itself uh, in a very purposeful way, directed way. Um, I see a lot of teleology there. And so I was like, I'm, I'm like, I need to capitalize on this opportunity to philosophically and scientifically show that nature is fine tuned for to bring uh, to harbor, bring about and maintain life. Um, and that's all on the backs of uh, a mind intentionality so i'm not even arguing that that's the difference between me and intelligent design i'm not even arguing that you know an intelligence is 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 um giving information out or or producing new species it's right at the beginning of the cosmos uh the whole blueprint was already set up mm -hmm. and the natural laws basically do the construction work so that's that's my view and that's what i'm advancing and but there's a there's a very 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 simplistic um way to to describe it there's a lot more to unpack but that's just kind of the gist of it yeah yeah i got you i think one of the most common objections i think that we'd see to your view is the idea that we'll say hey if you give it enough time and enough location eventually improbable events can occur and we have no need to posit any sort of god to explain these things that seem very challenged to explain from a pure naturalist perspective so i'm cur curious kind of what are your thoughts on that yeah it's like to even get to even get um, the evolution of life to actually happen, um, you need all that fine tuning, and that's what a lot of people don't understand. Which is like life; they 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 feel like you can get life so easily, and and what you need to get life um, is you need you need the you need the proper physics, you need the proper chemistry, um, uh, and then you need the proper environments. 
um, so that um, stable reproducible complexity can actually arrive at conscious moral agents such as ourselves. Um, it's kind of that question, like, why didn't life go beyond unicellular life? You know, so it's like if we look at um, we have to remember that theism isn't trying to explain fine tuning. It's trying to explain why there's fine tuning. So I think, and I think that's what a lot of Christians should realize is that we're not trying to explain the fine tuning data because that sounds like we're pitting ourselves against science. What we're trying to do is explain why there's fine tuning data. Basically, why should we expect there to be fine tuned universe on theism or naturalism? You know, you know, you start with the hypothesis of mind and we live in a universe where there's other minds. You start with the hypothesis with non-rationality, non-mind, impersonal, and we live in a universe in which produces personal, rational, uh, conscious creatures. And you, you compare the two hypotheses and go, well, which one is more likely to be true? Um, hypothesis more likely to be true given this data. Um, and I think theism um, uh, wins that. I think it's very, very low on naturalism that you would expect there to be a finely tuned universe. Um, a single listic, a, a single naturalistic universe where only had one go, um, that you would get a type of universe like that. Um, so that's, that, that's kind of roughly kind of what the argumentation consists of. And, um, and so that's kind of like why there's retreats to multiverse theories and, or that physics itself is um, necessary, which means that life is necessary and that life had to happen. I even think if someone says that life must be, uh, I think that's actually uh, works more in favor of a theistic view mm -hmm. because literally it's saying that there's no way that physics could have been different. Um, there must have been life. Um, and I'm like, why would naturalism have such, um, why would that be a naturalistic universe? There must be life. It kind of goes against the whole idea that we're supposed to be this corner of the universe that doesn't matter. You know, you know, the mm -hmm. whole view. Yeah. yeah. I guess, but if yeah. life is necessary, you know, like, then what's what's really but anyways go ahead no no you're good bro um i'll transition here you can add any thoughts if you want do you, do you have any thoughts you want to add before we go into the moral argument for like just a few minutes um well other thing i would say is um it's just all about when likelihoods we're not using statistical probability here that we are um looking um at at what through what's logically possible. Um, we have a, a set of parameters, get, um, that being the way that the, that the physics exemplifies itself in our universe. And those parameters um, can um, take a, a numerous amount of forms in which, in which life wouldn't be able to um, arise or even go past unicellular organisms um, to produce conscious body of moral agents. So it's, it's basically like a contingency argument for physics, like why these parameters versus other parameters. And so I think that, um, that a theism does it, does it well there um, because um, you can put it in the sense of, well, it's a mind um, um, that has, uh, that's why the parameters, the parameters are consistent on mind, which um, cares about the flourishing of creatures. Um, and I think that would fit a, a view of a 
kind of a foundational mind that's good, you know, sounds like God. So I would just put that there. And um, that's just, I find that a helpful way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's go to more knowledge quickly, just for a few minutes before you, we have to end this stream. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about this idea of moral knowledge, um, defending it, and just kind of like the moral argument in general? Yeah, so the moral argument has always been a really um, cool one for me. I really, I really liked it uh, because uh, basically the moral argument, um, an argument for moral knowledge, basically says, um, basically uses moral realism, which says that basically I like the uh, I like the definition that Andrew, Dr. Andrew Fisher gives, that moral judgments can be true or false. That sometimes they are true and that what makes them true is independent of people's or groups of people's beliefs, judgments, or desires. And basically what that means is um, there are actual moral facts. There are objective moral facts in reality. And what the moral argument tries to do is it tries to go, well, what best explains uh, the existence of moral facts? These are things that are not material. They're abstract, but they govern our lives. Um, they are the reason why we want to vote. They're the reason why we want to um, dedicate our lives to a particular profession um, that is not even about us. It's very, uh, it, it per, uh, perme- uh, uh, pervades every human's life. Morality does. And so we seem to have these moral facts. It's like, well, what best explains them? Uh, and the moral argument says the best explanation is that there is a rational source that transcends human minds, uh, which is uh, the source of morality. There's a foundational source that transcends human minds. Um, And uh, so we live in a universe created by a foundational mind in which is rational, in which um, is the source of uh, the moral realm that we can access. So that's what I like about the moral argument because it's it's an inference to the best explanation um, upon uh, the features of the world that we see, and one of those is is, is morality. So um, either you can think morality is subjective, or you can think of morality is uh, a relative, subjective, or just even radic- more of a stronger view. Um, morality is actually just preference based. It is uh, the non cognitive stance would say that. Uh, moral sentences don't actually mean anything. Um, their statement of preference and um, uh, uh, I guess uh, disgust or dislike, but they don't really morally mean anything. Um, so there's many different routes someone can go uh, if they don't really think, but the whole idea is to get them on board with moral realism, well, certain arguments. Um, but anyways, we, we can talk more about that, but that's kind of like the, the whole kind of like how I think about it. Yeah, I think something, uh, probably the last question we'll get to before we have to wrap things up here, is it's interesting, interesting how would you defend moral realism? Because I think a lot of people would be like, well, you can't measure it, you can't see it, things like that um, in an empirical sense. So how would you defend moral realism? Well, yeah, so moral realism, um, I mean, I mean that, that's the funny thing about it, is it, it's not something that can be put under a microscope. It's not something that can be verified um, uh, by through physics. Um, and that's, um, but that's okay. Um, I mean, philosopher AJ Ayer, when he lived during the very verificationistic era of philosophy, um, said that, uh, 
you know, uh, if you disliked racism, um, really what you're saying is, um, I don't, I don't really like this thing, but you're not really saying anything moral because of his verificationistic philosophy. But since verificationism has died off, um, and lots of progress has been made, uh, actually, um, there's a philosophy survey that actually says that uh, majority of philosophers actually lean towards moral realism. Hmm. Um, more student, more philosophy student, actually, more college students are uh, relativists compared to their philosophy professors. Hmm. So, uh, in the area of philosophy, um, moral realism is the um, is what is it is the majority view. So basically. Uh, more, more, it's intuitive. So it's one of those things that you kind of um, don't really uh, have to doubt that much. It's one of the, it's the more obvious thing. It's the more clear thing to us. So how I treat intuitions is I say, well, until I have a defeater for my intuition, I'm going to trust it. Um, and so many people can offer defeaters because it's the, le the less obvious premise. The less obvious premise is that moral facts exist. Um, uh, the more, uh, sorry, the, the more obvious premise is that moral facts exist. The least obvious premise is that moral facts don't exist. Um, so here's the thing is that moral disagreement actually shows something about morality. It shows that we, uh, the reason why we disagree and the reason why we, uh, want to, uh, uh, run for office and, and, and legislate things on healthcare and things of that sort is because, um, every human is, uh, trying to understand what the moral thing is to do but we are fallible so our abilities to to um attempt our attempts in understanding what moral facts are we are fallible in doing so that actually is why moral disagreement happens it's just we are not perfectly able to apprehend what's the moral thing to do so moral progress is actually made from uh the fact that uh, we actually discover what the right thing to do is or what the wrong thing to do is. Um, so actually, as as we uh, gain knowledge, our moral knowledge increases and we are able to, to see and act in a way that's, um, uh, that's objective um, and things. And so I think that's one, one reason that's um, uh, morality, the more obvious premise is that moral facts do exist. And if we think about moral actions between humans that would uh moral actions between humans would just be manifestations of objective moral values and duties um and so those are just kind of a couple of reasons um why i think and a, and a common objection if that's okay if i bring up an objection yeah, go for it. is um is evolution i think that's what you wanted to bring up too right that yeah one of the things i sent you yeah you yeah um the evolution objection says that you know um, our, uh, our moral intuitions were given to us because of evolution. Um, and, uh, they, we've been biologically programmed, um, for adaptive reasons to, uh, believe, uh, to have these moral intuitions because they were helpful to us. But evolution, um, is the wrong mechanism to use to establish moral facts. So like, even if somebody were to give a complete evolutionary account of morality, it would only explain how we came to know moral facts. It would not ground them because evolution is a survival of the fittest mechanism. It is not a truth grounding mechanism about the world. So it would, uh, 
get us cognitively to a place to be able to reason with one another. And that's what that's what that's the interesting part is that morality is a rational enterprise. Um, to act morally, you have to be able to reason. You have to be able to uh, decide and make a decision based on what's happening. Um, so um, evolution would have just kind of uh, granting the argument would have kind of just taken us uh, along the path to a point where we can actually do that, but it wouldn't create the moral values. Um, and so that just, that's, that just confuses moral epistemology, how we know, come to know things that are moral and not and moral ontology, which is, um, the, uh, what is moral, um, or sorry, the, uh, the, um, foundations of morality, what morality actually, um, it's not just discovering moral things or knowing what's good and what's bad, but the meta ethical, uh, part of it. Mm. So, yeah, I just don't think that a survival of the fittest mechanism can actually ground moral facts. Yeah, Tim, lots, lots of great stuff, man. I was going to start to wrap things up here if that works for you because I know we're closing in on time, Tim. So mm -hmm. any any last thoughts? And then after that, just plug all your stuff so people can follow Invoking Theism, all the cool stuff you got going on. Yeah, no, yeah, it was really cool. Um, love doing this. Um, basically... Um, one thing I would say is anybody who's listening and who, um, is, uh, agnostic or skeptical about, uh, theism and things of that sort, just remember to think about theism as a, uh, explanatory hypothesis and not a scientific one. So theism has never been against science, but rather it's an inference to a more, uh, gr uh a foundational ultimate theory, the theory about of reality. So that's why, and that's why I like these arguments. And, um, but yeah, um, follow me on Twitter. Uh, that's where I'm most active. Um, I kind of just dump my thoughts there throughout the day and, um, just, uh, subscribe to my channel. Yeah, good stuff. I encourage everyone to go follow Tim invoking theism. Uh, thanks for tuning in everyone. Be sure to leave a like and subscribe and enjoy all I hope you can enjoy all the content we have coming out. You can follow us at Here in Apologetics everywhere. And if you enjoy this show, you can support the show at patreon.com slash here in apologetics, or you can become a member and we're going to hopefully have some cool emojis coming out soon. So you know what it is. Tim, it's been fun, man. Really appreciate the time.